message is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. My pleasure to welcome you here, but also to welcome our guest speaker who's going to be sharing with us in just a moment a unique perspective on Easter. Maybe you've never heard quite like before. A friend, Rabbi Derek Lehman. Uh, I met Derek probably 10, 12 years ago at uh, my former church, First Baptist Duluth, where he spoke six or seven times for us there, giving us always a unique perspective, uh, a Jewish perspective on Christ, and now today, Easter. So be in prayer for him, and uh, afterwards, make sure you, uh, you find him in the foyer. He's got a bunch of materials for not just adults, but for children as well, and so you'll want to look through that as well. But Derek, we're glad you're here. How many kids now? Like 14? Eight kids. Anything more than two is 14 to me. We're glad you're here, Derek. Thank you for being with us on this uh, special day. You have your Bibles with you open, please, to Luke 23, 49. I don't know whether you guys put the scriptures. Oh, I see you do. You put the scriptures up there. We'll start in Luke 23, 49, and through the course of uh, the, the message, we'll move through Luke 24. So, We'll start in uh, Luke 23:49. but before I read that, let me just say that a small group of rather unimportant people experienced something 2,000 years ago that changed history. And what we're going to talk about this morning is eyewitnesses, mystery, and the resurrection. In Luke 23:49, we read, oh, it's easier to just read it from up there. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing these things. Now, if you were to, you don't need to turn back, but if you were to go back to Mark 14, 50, you would see that all of the disciples forsook Jesus and fled when he was arrested. Now, if you just peek ahead to Luke 24, 4, you'll see something else. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. They were perplexed. So people are standing at a distance, observing the crucifixion. All the disciples have forsaken him and fled. When they encounter the empty tomb, their first reaction is to be perplexed. If you were to turn back to Mark 16, 8, you would find that when they found the empty tomb, they were astonished, they were trembling, and they were so frightened that first they said nothing to anyone. If you turn ahead now to Luke 24, 11, you'll see when the first reports came from the women to the apostles, it says, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. How can I get us to take a story that we know the end to and forget we know the end? How can I get us to pretend like we don't know where this is all going and to try to experience that initial perplexity, confusion, fear, and trembling, to feel the hurt, and then the gradual, can it really be true, and overwhelming joy? I hope we can take a journey like that this morning. The raising of Jesus' body was completely unexpected. 
not even those who were with him for years, listening to him teach on the hillsides, who heard his many parables, who heard his private explanations, who heard him foretell several times that this exact thing was going to happen. Not even they understood. And when they encountered the empty tomb, immediately they thought of things like stolen? Has his body been stolen? Who would do that? Who took his body? How can we get it back? The wrong way to read the story is to think that the disciples knew about resurrection, that they had studied Isaiah 53 or Hosea and knew all about the third day and that he was going to rise. It didn't happen that way. Also, a wrong way to read the story is to think that they expected Jesus to be the Messiah. Now, they did expect him to be the Messiah until he got arrested. At that point, no one believed anymore that Jesus was the Messiah. I point you back again to Mark 14.50. They all forsook him and fled. Another wrong way to read the story is to think that they knew all along he was going to die and that Messiah came to die for sin. Nobody knew that. I'm a little bit of an expert in Second Temple period Jewish texts, Okay, the writings of Jewish people from the time of Jesus. And I can tell you there's no Second Temple Jewish text that said Messiah was going to die. And they did not expect him to rise from the dead. Now I want us to go back to the cross before the tomb. Try for a minute to forget the end of the story and re-enter into the emotion of this thing. And I want us to begin in Luke 24, verse 1 but pretend that we don't know what's going to happen. We're there with the women as they come on the first day of the week at early dawn. They went out to the tomb taking the spices which they had prepared. Why did they come to the tomb with spices? That is, with spiced oil. Oil with spices in it to make it perfumed, to make it fragrant. Why did they come with perfumed oil to the tomb? To put perfumed bandages on his corpse, which they expected to rot and decay and to stink. And this was a way of taking care of the dead. They didn't think for a second that he was going to rise from the dead. Verse 2, And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Their reaction is perplexity. Verse 5, and as they were frightened and bowed down their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? Now, these are not the reactions of people who are expecting great miracles and signs from heaven. Verse 6, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered His words. Now this tells us a few things. The they who remembered His words here are the women. And sometimes people don't understand that the word disciples in the Gospels doesn't just mean the twelve. Not only does it not just mean the twelve, it doesn't just mean the men. There are quite a few women who are disciples of Jesus, which is something made abundantly clear in a lot of contexts in the Gospels. And here in this text, we find that the women had been included even in the inner circle. 
that these women who came to the tomb had heard the predictions of his death, which you read about in several places in the Gospels, and the predictions of his resurrection. So Jesus had not just told these things to the twelve or just to the men, he had told them also to the women. A second thing we realize from this is that there's a pattern. The pattern is before the resurrection happened, Jesus taught his group of disciples what was going to happen, knowing full well that they wouldn't believe or understand a word of it. But knowing full well that there was going to come a moment. There was going to come a moment in which they suddenly realized that what he had said was true in a way that blew their whole paradigm. In a way that they had not foreseen. Something that was so out of Jewish way of thinking. Something that shouldn't happen until the end of the world was going to happen to Jesus that morning. And Jesus knew that his words would come back to them. You might look at Jesus and say, well, he wasn't a very effective teacher, was he? He walked around for years with these disciples and he told them what was going to happen. And yet when he got arrested, they all forsook him. But I think Jesus was a very effective teacher. It's just it had to wait for the final lesson before everything would make sense. Maybe you've taken a class like that before. Nothing made sense until you got a final lesson. And then when it happened, all of a sudden, all the things you heard before, they all fit into a pattern. And you can imagine the great awakening, the great realization that happened. Jesus spoke about his resurrection, and he spoke about it in two different ways. He spoke about it cryptically, and he spoke about it clearly. Let me remind you of some of the clear references. Mark 8, 3. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. You'd think that a bunch of disciples who heard that would understand. Why didn't they understand? Because it didn't fit with anything they believed about what God would do. It didn't fit with anything they believed about what Messiah would do. When Jesus said it in the midst of a lot of his other sort of confusing parables, it was one of those things that just went over their head. What are you talking about? As a matter of fact, after Jesus said that, Peter rebuked him. But there are other times he referred to it cryptically. John 2.19, he said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Nobody understood it till after the resurrection. In fact, at his trial, people tried to say he, he had claimed he was going to destroy the temple. But if you read John 2.20, he says he was referring to the temple of his body, which no one understood until after the resurrection. Or here's one that's very cryptic. Luke 13, 32. He says, I cast out demons. Remember, Jesus did that. He cast demons out of people. Nobody, by the way, in the Bible had ever cast out demons before Jesus. A lot of people don't know that. And perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I will finish my course. It's a very poetic way of speaking. Because he's not talking here about Literally like it's Monday, and on Monday I'm going to cast out demons and cure people. Tuesday I'm going to cast out people and cure demons, and Wednesday I'm... It's not like that. It's a very poetic, cryptic reference to say the life of Messiah is about casting out demons, healing people, giving visible demonstrations of the kingdom. But the real thing that's going to happen will happen on the third day. No one could understand that until later. Or Matthew 12.40, the Son of Man can be three days and three nights, or will be three days and three nights, in the heart of the earth. Can you imagine what it was like when the disciples finally had their minds open, when they finally understood? 
They're cowering in fear. Only the women have come to the cross. The reason only the women have come to see the cross and also the beloved disciple who wrote the Gospel of John, but that's a story for another time. Why are the women the only ones who have come to the cross? Because there's no chance they'll be arrested. There's no chance anyone's going to think the women could be the leaders of a revolution against Rome. So they're safe to come and watch from a distance. But can you imagine when finally, as they're all cowering in fear, and they hear the news, which at first seems to them like an idle tale, they actually realize it's true. And it changes everything they believe. Let's continue our story in Luke 24, verse 9. And returning from the tomb, they, that is the women, told all this to the eleven. It's the eleven now. Remember, Judas is not with them anymore. And to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Another translation, instead of saying idle tale, says nonsense. Now, if you think that this way of introducing the resurrection story is a very strange way of introducing the resurrection story, you're right. It is strange. So why on earth does Luke tell the story this way? N.T. Wright says that there are four features of the empty tomb stories that we ought to understand. And the first one is the silence of the Bible. What does he mean by that? If you read the account of Jesus' crucifixion, you'll see all kinds of references to the Old Testament. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 and Zechariah 12. Many, many references. Psalm 69. In the empty tomb stories, there's not one single reference to an Old Testament verse. The second thing you'll notice, and this is the most striking of all. Matter of fact, if you remember one thing about this morning, what I said, this might be the thing to remember. When the Gospels tell the story of the empty tomb and the resurrection appearance, they don't make any sermon at all about the afterlife. There's not a single sermon about the afterlife in the resurrection accounts of the Gospels. Isn't that strange? I mean, is it because when the Gospels were written, it was so early and nobody understood yet that because Jesus was raised, we too would be raised, that he was the first fruits of those who sleep and that we would follow later and we would have our bodies raised and dwell on the new earth, the world to come? Didn't they understand that? Absolutely they did. How do I know they did? Because the letters of Paul are written earlier than the Gospels. Sometimes people don't realize that. They think, well, since you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts come in our Bible before Romans and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, they must have been written first. No, the letters of Paul are written much earlier than the Gospels. And in particular, there's a chapter in the letters of Paul that preaches an afterlife sermon based on the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15. You've probably heard a lot of sermons on Easter morning from 1 Corinthians 15. It's a great, great chapter. Paul was writing before Luke wrote his gospel. And Paul already in 1 Corinthians 15 had said, without the resurrection event, our faith is vain. Without the resurrection, the cross could not erase sins and death would not be reversed. Without the resurrection, the guilty remain unforgiven. The dead are gone forever. And those who are dead in Adam remain under the sentence of death. There is no future resurrection for any of us to look forward to if Jesus was not raised. 
And Paul said all that in 1 Corinthians 15 before Luke ever put pen down to papyrus. So if that's true, why doesn't Luke preach an afterlife sermon when he tells the story? Why, don't, why doesn't Mark or Matthew or John preach an afterlife story? The third thing, the first was silence of the Bible. The second was the absence of any sermon about the afterlife. The third thing to notice is that the resurrection accounts say that the main witnesses were women. Now, in their day, women were not regarded as trustworthy witnesses. The testimony of a woman in court was thought to be of lower value. If you're making up a story about a Savior who supposedly rose from the dead, if you're inventing the details, you don't invent that the first witnesses, the primary witnesses, were women because no one will believe your story. You would only admit that embarrassing, from their point of view, detail if it's true. And the fourth thing is that in the resurrection accounts, they describe the body of Jesus in some very unusual ways. We'll see more of that in a minute in Luke 24. But they don't describe the body of Jesus like you might think, boom, and light shone out of every pore, and it was so bright no one could stand to look at him, and he was glorious, and choirs of angels sang. But there are mysterious things about his body after he's raised. By the time Luke writes his gospel, it's 50 years after Jesus has been raised. Think about 50 years ago, what was happening in the world. The Beatles, I don't even think they'd started recording music yet 50 years ago. I could be wrong. Maybe somebody knows the actual date. 50 years is a long time. What's happened in this Jesus movement since Jesus was raised for 50 years? Well, it's spread all over the Roman Empire. And believe me, people all over the Roman Empire, they know about the cross. They know about the empty tomb. They know about the resurrection appearances. Luke isn't telling this story for the first time. People know this story. Where do they know it from? They know it because eyewitnesses have been proclaiming it in the church. They know it because people who heard eyewitnesses tell their stories spread out and said, hey, once I heard from Cleopas, or once I heard from Simon of Cyrene, or I heard Bartimaeus tell his story once in Jerusalem, and they're spreading it all over the Roman Empire. The story is being told orally. Everyone's hearing these stories. The stories you read about in the Gospels, people knew them. They recited them by heart. And they already know about Jesus' resurrection as the defeat of death and the promise of life to come. But why does Luke write the story the way he does? Without quoting the Old Testament? Without making any sermon on the afterlife? Let's read more, continuing in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem and walking and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Verse 16 is very important. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. What does that mean? Did he look different? Did he wear some sort of disguise or a cloak over his face? Or is this some supernatural thing he disguises his appearance? Well, when Luke says their eyes were kept from recognizing him, that's what we call the passive tense of the verb. They tell writers never to use the passive tense of the verb. You're supposed to always use active verbs 
But Jewish writers use the passive tense of the verb to indicate that God did something. So when it says, their eyes were kept, how were their eyes kept? Their eyes were kept by God from recognizing him. It's beyond their control. It's not a decision that these two disciples made not to recognize Jesus. It's something that was done supernaturally by Jesus or by God. Now, why would Jesus disguise his appearance? Let's keep reading more. Verse 17. And he said to them, What is this conversation which you are holding with each other as you walk? That's a good teaching method. You already know the answer to a question, but you ask your students. You can draw it out of them. And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened here in these days? You're supposed to see the irony there. You're supposed to chuckle. Not only does he know, he lived through it. Let's talk about Cleopas for a second. Cleopas. What do we know about Cleopas? We know a lot of things about Cleopas. Now, they're not in this particular story, but let me tell you a few things about Cleopas. First of all, his name is extremely rare. So if in another place in the Gospels you see the name Cleopas, you can be sure it's talking about the same person, or at least pretty sure. Let me just tell you that in John 19.25, when it says, who was standing at the cross, it says, Jesus' mother, his mother's sister, Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the wife of Clopas. Now, Clopas is a variant spelling of Cleopas. Clopas equals Cleopas. So, the wife of Cleopas was standing at the cross. But we know more things about Cleopas than just that. We also know from Eusebius, the historian, that Cleopas was the brother of Joseph, who was Jesus' father. Let me say that again. Cleopas was the brother of Joseph, who was Jesus' father. That's right. Cleopas is Jesus' uncle. And he's one of his disciples. Can you imagine being a disciple of your nephew? That's who Cleopas is a disciple of. Now, why doesn't Luke explain this in the story? Why doesn't he give us a little sentence, you know, about who Cleopas is? Because Luke didn't really realize we'd be here 2,000 years later and not know this information, okay? Everybody in Luke's churches knew this information. Cleopas was famous, one of the eyewitnesses, one of the people who told their story in the early church. Everybody knew Cleopas. Everybody knew Cleopas' story. In fact, according to Eusebius, after James, the brother of Jesus, died, it was James' brother, who was also a relative of Cleopas, who became the leader of the Jerusalem church. These were people who were massively famous to the whole Jesus movement all over the Roman Empire. Now, people like Cleopas are very important for our understanding of whether the Gospels are true or not. You see all kinds of TV documentaries and magazine articles that put a picture of Jesus on the cover of Time every now and then and have an article and they interview 20 experts and usually four or five of them are total flakes and they'll say, you know, all the reasons why the story of Jesus isn't true, and they'll have a few people, you know, like N.T. Wright or somebody who will say, no, it is true, and here's why. And people reading the article don't know what to make of it. There's a guy in England named Richard Bacham who wrote a book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. 
Now, the important thing to know about Richard Bauckham is he's not just any New Testament scholar. He's one of the elite, top-level New Testament scholars in the world. Every scholar reads his material. You cannot be in New Testament studies and not read what Richard Bauckham has written. He's, he's a high-level scholar, and he wrote a book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, and he says the Gospels tell you over and over again who the eyewitnesses were. If you think about it in the Gospel story, some people have to be named, people like Herod, John the Baptist, it's not, it's not unusual that they're named. The disciples, you expect them to be named. But why are people like Bartimaeus named? Why are people like Cleopas named? Or Simon of Cyrene, or his son, sons Rufus and, I forget Simon of Cyrene's other son's name, Ruf, Alexander, Rufus and Alexander. Why are they named? Because the gospel writers name the eyewitnesses whose stories were known to the early church. And Bauckham supports this theory with mounds of literary evidence. And he says that in the early church, people wanted to hear the story of the eyewitness. As a matter of fact, you didn't have to actually go to Jerusalem and hear Cleopas speak. Somebody might come to your town. Maybe you live in Lystra up in Asia Minor. And somebody comes to your town and they say, when I was a little boy, I went down to Damascus. And Cleopas was speaking to the congregation, and I heard Cleopas tell his story, and this is what he said. People wanted to hear people who heard the eyewitnesses. The Gospels were not written down until when? Until the eyewitnesses started dying. You see, that's when pe people didn't know when Jesus was going to come back. At first, they thought, we don't need to write this down. Jesus is going to come back. And we all know the story. We keep telling it over and over again. People who heard it from people who saw it. But then the eyewitnesses started dying out and people said, um, Jesus, are you going to come back in time? People might forget this story. My grandchildren might not know this story. We better write it down. That's the time when the Gospels were written. Let's continue in verse 19. And he said to them, What things? talking about the things that happened in Jerusalem. They said he obviously didn't know what had just happened. What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Sounds exactly like what Jesus told them would happen, doesn't it? But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Now, what do they mean when they say, but we had hoped? In other words, we don't hope any longer. Now that he's been arrested and killed, we know he's not the Messiah anymore. We were wrong. Yes, and besides all that, it is now the third day since this happened. See the irony? <laughs> Didn't he say he would rise on the third day? And they say, besides all that, now it's the third day. They have no idea that there's going to be a rock band called Third Day. Not only that, but their faith has gone backwards. Before that, Peter had said that Jesus was the Messiah. Now all they say about him was, we thought he was a prophet. Apparently he wasn't even that. Their faith is, and this is Cleopas, his uncle, who's saying all this. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They're perplexed. Their hope is disappointed. Jesus was a good man, but he wasn't the deliverer. Otherwise, why would he be dead? Verse 22. 
Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and they did not find his body. And they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. They even know the women's report and they still don't believe it. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. And then Jesus said to them, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus gave his first post-resurrection sermon, and the point of his sermon was, you guys got it all wrong. This idea that Messiah would come and bring everything all at once and there'd be fireworks and lightning and handles Messiah, you got it all wrong. He said it was in the scriptures, but none of you saw it. Messiah must die and rise. Verse 28, so they drew near to the village where they were going and he appeared to be going further. Jesus is a good teacher, you know, he... He wants to eat with them, but he's going to pretend like he's going to keep... He's going to make them invite him if he's going to eat with them, right? But they constrained him saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening and now the day is spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table, he took the bread and blessed. And he broke it and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and poof. That's what my translation says. And poof, he vanished out of their sight. Notice when exactly their eyes were opened and what Jesus was doing. Notice that he disappeared. How can he do that? Is he a ghost? Does he have a ring like Bilbo or Frodo? You know, how did, he, how did he do that? Verse 32, now they're starting to understand. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and opened to us the scriptures? Is your heart burning as you enter into the experience of this story? If you really know death, if death has touched you, in some way. This story can make your heart burn. If death is not just some theory for you, the thought of this very thing will light you on fire. If you've tasted sadness and separation, if you face the possibility of your own death, if you've come close to losing someone that you love with all your heart, then let your heart burn as you think about this. Verse 33 they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven gathered together and those who were with them who said, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Their eyes were open in the breaking of the bread. Remember, I told you, Luke is writing this 50 years later. The Jesus followers know all about breaking bread, don't they? 
They've been breaking bread frequently. It's one of their habits as a group of Jesus followers to break bread. So here's a question. On the road to Emmaus, when Jesus said a blessing and broke bread, was this the normal Jewish blessing over bread? Well, the blessing itself was, but it was at the normal procedure. After he said, Baruch atah he proceed to do the normal Jewish thing. Here's why it's not normal. He distributed the bread to the two disciples. In a normal blessing, everyone eats their own bread. But at what occasion is bread distributed? There are two occasions where bread is distributed. You don't just eat your own bread. And the, one of those occasions is Jewish and the other is Christian. You know the Christian one, you call it communion or the Lord's Supper. You might be able to guess the Jewish one, because we're on the week of it right now. Passover. The only two times you distribute the bread are Passover in Jewish life, communion in Christian life. Jesus gives them the Passover like he did at the Last Supper. For people who are coming after the experience of Cleopas, who've had life in the Jesus movement, it's as if Jesus is giving them communion. That's when their eyes are open. And as soon as they understand, poof, Jesus disappears. The disciples recognized him when he served bread. Verse 44. Oh, actually, verse 36. As they were saying this, Jesus himself stood among them. But they were startled and frightened and supposed they saw a spirit. Look how slow they were to believe this. He told them they didn't believe it. The women came and said the tomb was empty. They didn't believe it. Simon said, I've seen him. Now they start to believe it. He appears to them. And they think, is this a ghost? The Greeks and Romans believed that people lived on in the afterlife as shades, denizens of the underworld, ghosts, half, half existence, not a real existence. And in some stories, ghosts from the underworld appeared to men. Maybe that's what this is. The shade of Jesus is appearing to us. Verse 38, and he said to them, why are you troubled and why do questionings rise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Handle me and see for a spirit has not flesh and bones as you see that I have. And while they still disbelieved for joy and wondered, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate it before them. Old ways of thinking are hard to get past. We all have old ways of thinking. Can you accept that death is coming, but also that death is not the end? Can you truly imagine crossing over that boundary personally yourself? Feeling the touch of God when you're beyond the barrier. Verse 44. He said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins 
should be preached in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. You are what? Witnesses. Jesus gave them a message and he made them witnesses. Why didn't Jesus just do the witnessing himself? Why didn't he just appear to Tiberius Caesar? That would have shaken the the world in a major way. Why didn't he appear to Herod Antipas? Why didn't he appear to Pilate? Why didn't he go out amongst the Roman legions and appear and show his wounds and say, you say Caesar is Lord, I'll show you who Lord is. Why did he appear to such a small group of rather unimportant people? Because God actually isn't wringing his hands, worrying about how easy he makes it for you and I to believe. He isn't. And he has no ego to worry about whether people believe in him or not. He just has love. It's never about ego with him. And God has these ways of doing things small that grow large, like a mustard seed, that actually turn out to be far more powerful when you look at them after the fact. And God said, I'm not going to appear to Tiberius Caesar. I'm going to appear to some Galileans, some women, some people of no power, some people at the total bottom of society. And they're going to tell their story, and that story is going to get told to other people, and I'm going to change the whole world with a tiny little group of witnesses. And that's exactly what happened. And we are witnesses who pass it on to the next generation. If it stops with us, if it doesn't get passed to our children and our grandchildren, it stops. It's been passed down for 2,000 years, witness to witness to witness. That's God's way. It doesn't happen through some big vision in the sky. Verse 49, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He gave them not only a message, but also a source of strength. And that source of strength would be the Spirit of Jesus that would come upon them in Jerusalem. How does that work? The Spirit of Jesus. The book of Acts is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke, right? And the book of Acts tells you how it works. It works the way the book of Acts says it works. Luke, at the end of this Gospel, he shows it getting passed down. In the book of Acts, he shows you how it works. Here is not how it works. The way it does not work is you just believe in God and Jesus and read your Bible and pray. The way it works is we experience Jesus, the living Lord, when we gather together, when we communally pray, when we communally worship, when we break bread together, when we serve and give together. When Jesus said where two or three of you are gathered, he didn't mean your lazy boy and your TV and you. He meant when we get together. See, that's where the Spirit is revealed. And just as Jesus hid his face from his disciples on the road to Emmaus, the Spirit doesn't look like something supernatural. Spirit stuff probably already happened in this building this morning, and you didn't notice it, and no you know, angelic choir sang a song about it. It happened. It's mystical. God is mystical. He's hidden, but you see him if you have eyes to see. Now, there are four themes I want to just remind you about from what I've said. First, perplexity. 
They were perplexed by the resurrection of Jesus, and we should be as well. If you think you understand resurrection, wait until you get your death sentence from the doctor. And then you decide if you really understand resurrection. If you think you you could just learn a lesson in Sunday school and you got it down and you made an A on that lesson and now you know it, wait till the real test comes. You know it. And the second theme I want you to remember is remembrance. The angel said, remember what he told you. Remember. In Judaism, we're very big on remembering. We have all these holidays. The basic theme of every holiday is they tried to kill us, they failed, let's eat. In Christianity, we have this big theme of remembrance. Remember my body. Remember my blood. That I did this for you. Never forget. Do it for everyone else as well. I became a sacrifice to make you a sacrifice. That the whole world would live in sacrificial love. Mystery is another theme I'd like for you to remember from this. Jesus was a mystery to them. His face was veiled. They couldn't, they couldn't see him. They couldn't understand him. By the way, that's not the only time it happened. There's another appearance in John 21. He comes to the Sea of Galilee. The disciples are up there. Jesus is veiled from them. They can't see him. He walks out to the boat, and he says, Let down your nets for a catch, which they should have recognized because he'd already said that once earlier. And when they did, they caught too many fish and the nets were breaking. But even when he says that, only one person gets it, the beloved disciple, the one who wrote the Gospel of John gets it. And when Peter finally gets it, he takes off his outer tunic, jumps in the water and starts swimming. That's Peter, active. Jesus was a mystery to them. He can be a mystery to us. His own uncle saw him on the road to Emmaus and didn't recognize him. You might not recognize Jesus every time you see him. Jesus is always more than he appears to be. He disappears and reappears at will. And you will never get to the end of who Jesus is. Because it doesn't matter how fast you go toward infinity, you never get there. And finally, remember continuation. Jesus left us two things. He left us a message and a source of strength. The message is that we know people who knew people who knew people who saw the very events we just heard of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the accounts that we have in the Gospels are not like Paul's writings. They're raw accounts. I never exactly explained to you why Luke doesn't put a resurrection sermon in his story. The reason is the stories of Jesus were already being told from early on by the eyewitnesses in a certain way, and they were much beloved. So you weren't allowed to mess with them. It's kind of like when a church likes hymns and somebody starts singing new songs and someone says, I don't want you to change the songs. I want to do it the way it was 50 years ago. Well, the earliest believers were used to hearing the stories of the resurrection the way the eyewitnesses told it. The eyewitnesses told the story with all that perplexity and misunderstanding, and that's how people first heard it. And those stories got retold that way because people tended to memorize and repeat exactly what they heard. And so it was okay to preach sermons about the afterlife 
But that's a different thing than telling the story of the resurrection. If you want to do a Bible study today, read the accounts of the resurrection in all four Gospels. Keep in mind, by the way, that Mark actually ends at 16.8. Anything after 16.8 in Mark is not original. Go read the resurrection accounts in all the Gospels and say, does this sound like an Easter sermon? Or does this sound like people who were amazed, shocked, frightened, afraid, telling the story early on? Jesus is most powerfully with us when we gather, when we listen to the Word, when we're around the table like He and the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, breaking bread. He is present, but where is He present? He's present in the quiet inner life of the Spirit. He's present in the relationship of love that we have between each other as followers of Jesus. He's present in the giving and the receiving and the making this world more like the world to come that happens when the church gathers in small groups and in large groups. The presence of Jesus is subjective. You can't prove it to your neighbor. The presence of Jesus is experiential. You say, I feel it, I sense it, I know it. And someone says, I didn't feel anything, I didn't sense it. That's experiential. It's communal. You may have great times with Jesus all by yourself, but the expression of Jesus is in giving and receiving and the back and forth, not just in your private communion. But the presence of Jesus is very real. And almost everyone in this room, I'm pretty sure, has experienced it before. And as we've experienced it and we felt that, that joy, that, that sense of realization, He really is alive. That's Jesus. When you feel that, that's the Spirit of Jesus, our living Lord. He is a mystery, but He's real. Our intellectual side can appreciate the fact that the stories were told by eyewitnesses and they're absolutely true and that we remember it. But the way we live it out is to pass it on, to do what he said, to be disciples. If we believe Jesus rose, if we believe he's the living Lord, then we should be doing what he taught his disciples to do for those three years that he was with them teaching them because that's how he started a movement and how he passed it to us. Let's pray. Father, so many things argue against faith in our world today. But we believe with perfect faith that that tomb was empty. We believe with perfect faith that we do really experience you. And if someone tells me what you're calling Jesus is not real, I know it's because they haven't had the same experience. Lord, I pray that we would know the mysterious living Lord. I pray the presence would be made known to all of us. Increase our faith in the resurrection power of Jesus. And I pray that today we would feel that power in his name. If you would please stand, I want to do something special that happens at the very end. If we'd have read a few more verses in Luke 24, we would have seen that when Jesus ascended. He didn't just rise from the dead. He ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father. And when he ascended, at the end of the Gospel of Luke, it says he lifted up his hands and he blessed his disciples.
And anybody with a Jewish background knows exactly what that blessing is. It's the priestly blessing from Numbers chapter 6, at which they would lift their hands and make this sign and recite, Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmarecha Adonai panavelecha v'chunecha Yisah Adonai panavelecha v'yasem lecha Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his countenance toward you and give you the peace of Jesus that he leaves with you. Amen. 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 Thank you, Derek. Give Derek a thank you if you would. The quote I gave you from Warren Wiersbe at the beginning makes, uh, makes more sense to me now. That the church, because of the truth of Easter, is not a museum. We don't come in here to talk about relics, to just look at pictures on the wall. We are the tradition that continues. The message goes through us. I hope it goes through you this Easter Sunday. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.